We are going to study God's Word together, so if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 5. We're looking at the topic and subject of Advent all month, celebrating the arrival of Jesus in His first Advent and the implications of His first Advent for our lives here on the mission of God. So we're looking at the blend of one mediator and one mission. And that blend is not hard to create, it's very natural in the New Testament that Jesus comes and He says, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to give my life as a ransom to save. So we see that connection all throughout Scripture. I trust we'll see it right here in God's Word in Romans chapter 5 between one mediator and the one mission He's given us to tell the world what Jesus has done. So if you would, follow along. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, that is Adam, is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass, that's Adam's sin, if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act. There is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mm. If, you, uh, if you enjoy feel-good movies, then um, sports movies are right where you want to be, right? So, so often sports movies, they deliver that closure that you wanted, that feel-good inspiration moment, right? Very, very often, not always, but very often in the sports movie, there's some tension there toward the end, but the, the team that represents the protagonist gets the win. Again, it might be a hard-fought win, but in the end, you get that closure, right? Debates rage, even in our own house, debates rage about what is the greatest sports movie of all time. Uh, this week, I went and found an article that purported to announce the top 50 sports movies of all time. 
And I kind of didn't care about 50 and the 40s and the 30s. I just wanted to get to the good ones, right? Where, what's the top 10? What do you consider the top 20? What do you consider the top 10? So I'm just scrolling. It starts at 50. I'm just scrolling from 50. Don't care, don't care, don't care. I'm just, just trying to get down to 10. And on my way to 10, I passed all the great sports movies. So it's like, I don't even want to read. I, who, this is useless. The, who wrote this, right? Um, so here's the ones that I passed, just so you can share my outrage. These, none of these made the top 10. Chariots of Fire. Didn't even make top 20, Chariots of Fire. Field of Dreams. Didn't make the top 10. Karate Kid, right? <laughs> I, I craned for 10 years. That was like the ultimate fight move for 10 years after watching the Karate Kid. Didn't make the top 10. Hoosiers. Right, Hoosiers didn't make the top 10. And I, again, I just thought this is the most useless list ever. Who, who put this together? Then I finally get to the top 10. And here's, I didn't recognize the names of hardly any of them. I came down to the one that was ranked number two and it had a description of, of the movie. And um, that movie was directed by a man who said this. I found this quote from the director of that movie. Anything with a ball, no good. So it's like, well, why are you directing a sports film, right? That doesn't make any sense. So I knew I didn't like Scorsese. I just didn't know why until I read that quote. It's like, okay, that's why. That's why. Um, if that's not bad enough, so as I'm trucking down, right, this movie didn't make the top 50. Yeah, the outrage. I've actually never heard you respond that way. <laughs> that didn't make the top 50, but this one did. Yeah. Right. I mean, what a fallen world. If we ever needed <laughs> evidence that the world is fallen, there it is. So many of us have maybe seen that first movie, right? Remember the Titans, Denzel Washington, great sports film. If you've seen it, you remember that scene at the end of the movie when... They've all hung up their jerseys and they haven't played for years, but the team captain dies and so they meet there at the graveside, right? And they're all dappered up in their, in their jackets, their coats, their suits. And what do they do there at the graveside? They, uh, they sing. Na, 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 right? There's this kind of minor key haunting thing. There's no music and then in come the cellos behind it. It's just this deep emotional uh, conclusion to a great sports film. You get all that good feel stuff there at the end of the film. Well, Romans 5 speaks with the language of conclusiveness, and it speaks with the, the language of closure on a story, and the story is the story of the world. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of all that went wrong and all that was made right through the great protagonist himself, Jesus Christ. But it's a true story. It's the true story of the world that Romans 5 comes and tells us. And this is the language that you hear uh, in Romans chapter 5. Look down in verse 20. To sum it all up, here's what happened. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And here's the, the result, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life, and how does it come? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that we don't miss 
the point of Christ's arrival in Bethlehem, his incarnation and his sacrifice on the cross, Romans 5 tells us why Jesus came. He came because the first Adam blew it epically, and he was our representative. So if we're ever going to make it out of the fallen template of Adam, we're going to need a new representative. We're going to need a new protagonist. We're going to need a new hero, and somehow we're going to have to be tied to the outcome of his life. And this is in your notes. Christmas is God's answer to the universal problem of guilt and shame. The universal problem of guilt and shame. What went rampant the moment sin entered the world? Guilt and shame came pouring in to the cosmos, pouring into human existence. The Bible talks a lot about relevant things. I mean, what, what could be more relevant than guilt and shame? What's something that more clearly and closely identifies every single person in this room, but that there is a lifelong struggle with guilt and shame. It's very real. It's very relevant. The Bible talks about redemption. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that a debt was paid that we owed to God and that we could not pay. And Scripture speaks of Jesus, the righteous one, coming into this earth, coming in the form of a man, and bearing our guilt and bearing our shame on himself. He, he takes the rap of what we deserve from a holy God. He is treated as dirty. He is treated, he dies as an outcast outside the city on the dung heap outside Jerusalem. He dies in shame, but he's bearing it for you, as the hymn writer said, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood. It's the story of redemption. Friend, Advent is not, is not a sentimental sort of syrupy story. Advent, Christmas doesn't kind of drape the world in tinsel and call it good. It, it is not, it's not a superficial remedy. It is the deepest remedy imaginable. Advent is, an, is a life-changing reality. If you believe it, if you trust in the one Savior of the world, it's a promise that guilt and shame won't have the last word. So here in our text are two truths that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. The first is this. One act ruined all that was good. One act ruined all that was good. If you read through the text, you go back and read it later on, you see that word one appears time after time after time throughout this text. It just draws this bold line in the world. It says, one act and one man ruined everything. One act done by another man, the second Adam, changed everything forever. So it's just this massive contrast of one act did this and one act did this. Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. The language of Romans chapter 5 is that the whole of humanity lives in one of two realms. There are no exclusions, no anomalies. Everybody lives in one of two realms. You either live in the realm of sin and death, inaugurated by Adam, or you live in the realm of grace and life, inaugurated by Jesus Christ. There's only two realms under two men, under two federal heads, under two representatives, the realm of sin and death in Adam, the realm of grace and life in Christ. Look at verse 17 with me. Since by, here's Adam, the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness 
reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see it there again. One man here, ruin. One man here, redemption. This is in your notes. In the Garden of Eden, a human representative was chosen, Adam, and our fate was tied to his. A human representative was chosen, Adam, and our fate was tied to his. The reason that death is a universal reality is because we are connected to Adam, and his sin brought death into the world, and we came into this world inheriting that same condition, right? So this, just pause here for a second, because the whole notion, the whole air that Romans 5 breathes is... um, is a violation of our Western sensibilities. One of our favorite things in the West is radical individualism. We don't, we like the concept of solidarity, but we don't like to actually be linked up to the good of other people. We want to kind of go in on our own. I did it my way. That's kind of our culture. Well, that's not the air that the Bible breathes. And for that matter, incidentally, the rest of the world largely doesn't breathe that air either. African cultures, Asian cultures, Middle Eastern cultures. They very much see themselves as part of a people, part of a tribe. If the tribe succeeds, we succeed. If the tribe fails, we fail. They think of themselves tribally. They think of themselves in solidarity as a people. The same is true in the Bible. For example, the Old Testament story of David and Goliath, it's a story about solidarity. It's a story about representation. So you got the, the Philistine army and you have the, the army of Israel. And what do they do? Rather than duke it out in the Valley of Elah, they say, let's choose a champion. And the outcome of the match between our champion and your champion decides whether we're slaves or you're slaves. So they, Goliath comes out representing the Philistines and he taunts Israel and says, where's your champion? So we'll fight. And if I win, your people are subjugated to my people. And if he wins, my people are subjugated to your people. And David comes out and, and it's on, right? Representation, it meant if the guy wearing our jersey wins, we win. And if the guy wearing our jersey loses, we lose. And it, so in that situation, what you need is an able champion. You need a good head of the family. You need someone who's brave and valiant in battle. So at the beginning, a champion was chosen for us in the Garden of Eden. Adam was our representative. And our fate, as we said a moment ago, was tied to his. And what happened? He failed, so down went the human race. We went down with him. What's the story back there in the garden, right? God God didn't stack the deck against Adam. He said, I'm giving you everything. I'll provide all of this for your enjoyment. And I'll walk with you in the cool of the garden. Everything will be right in your human relationships. Everything will be right between you and creation. Everything will be right between you and me. There's just this one tree that's wrong. So don't touch this. One prohibition. And what do they do? They go and touch that tree. The one thing that they weren't allowed to do, they go and touch that tree. But God already told them in advance, listen, here's what happens. I'm going to lay down the stakes and they couldn't be higher. The day you eat of that thing, you die. They knew that. That that stipulation wasn't added later. It It was known in advance and they went and they bit the fruit and they made a grab for the throne that belonged to God alone. And the moment they bit the fruit, they knew from the inside, this is what shame feels like. Ah, you know, they come up to God and they, they say something about they're hiding their nakedness. And he said, who told you you're naked? 
They didn't know that before. They had never felt shame. It was a new feeling in the world, in the Garden of Eden. Never felt guilt, never felt shame. But now, now they died, right? Now they were going to die physically, and now they had died spiritually. There was a separation between God and man. Now they deserve judgment from a holy God. That, that sets up the whole narrative of the gospel story. We deserve judgment because we've sinned against a holy God. That's why we need the one mediator that we're talking about all this month, because the guy who was wearing our jersey failed to obey. And through his one act, this text says, death and condemnation spread to all. Separation from God became the way things are. We come into this world, our hearts aren't bent in his direction. Our hearts are bent away from him. We come into this world, we don't want God to sit on the throne. If there's a throne in this place, I want it. That's, so we inherited this nature. It's like a family likeness. We look just like Grandpa Adam. We look just like Grandma Eve. It's a family likeness that is faithfully transferred from generation to generation through the whole human family. That's what Romans 5 is about. Solidarity, down we go. Many of you may be familiar with um, the writing and the ministry of Russell Moore. Uh, Russ Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about his writing. I'm not going to talk about his, his ministry. I only bring him up here because he has a son who is an exact replica of Russell Moore. So here's full-size Russ Moore. I think we've got a picture. There's full-size Russ Moore, and here's miniature Russ Moore. (laughs) So you can't mistake the connection between the father and the son. And in a sense, that's kind of like Romans 5. The only difference in Romans 5 is you don't have the cute factor. You You have the family likeness, but you don't have the cute factor, right? Even when you look at that picture of Russ Moore and his son, it's like, okay, big mischief begat little mischief. And that's sort of the case with Romans chapter 5. Big mischief begat little mischief. And, and all throughout the world were flung this, this society, a family that has fallen away from grace and fallen from God. Friend, think about this. So every time you resist God's word, you look just like your grandpa, Adam. Every time you and I push him aside for the things that I crave and the things that I have to have and we define our own reality, we define right and wrong on our own terms, we look just like Grandma Eve. It's a family likeness. It's a spitting image. You think about the realities that Romans 5 is talking about and how this one act brings guilt and shame into the world, and those were new things in the world. Guilt and shame weren't known until sin took place and they turned from God's law. Friend, let me just, look, it, it does us well to remember. Sin will never take you the good places it promises to take you. The, the bus of rebellion against God only takes you one place, guilt and shame. 
it goes one place, death and condemnation. That's the language that's used here in Romans 5. That bus goes one place and it's nowhere good. It goes to guilt and shame, deeper and deeper and deeper. Those things, again, they didn't exist before the fall. Scripture says that Adam and Eve were created very good. Day one, very good. Day two, day three, all the way through, all of creation was very good. They were naked and not ashamed, the text says. There was no hiding. Imagine that. Imagine no hiding. Now, what do we so often do when we're talking with friends or we're getting to know people? So often, we're hiding. I remember R.C. Sproul saying many years ago, uh, an author, and he said that um, in, the, in the garden, they were naked and not ashamed. And ever since then, we clothe ourselves, we robe ourselves, we cover ourselves in the presence of others because we're ashamed. We don't want them to see what's really there. Shame is a reality in this world, and I can't give you better news than that Jesus Christ comes into this world to address what is the deepest human problem, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame will not have the last word for all who trust in Jesus Christ. That, that's the good news. Think about guilt, think about shame. They're in our ears all the time. What is guilt saying? Guilt is saying you've sinned and a consequence for your sin is condemnation. That's what you get, that's what you've earned from God. You wanna talk about earnings, you've earned condemnation from God. Shame says, not just you've done wrong, you're wrong, you, you yourself are defective and you're contagious, so now we have to quarantine you. you. We have to quarantine you from a holy God, we have to quarantine you from the good people. You can't be around them because you caught the stuff and it's got on you and now you're defective. It's not just what you did, it's who you are. That's what shame, shame and guilt, they're in our heads, they're in our ears. I, I preached on the topic of sexuality some months back. This is, one of, this is a message where we gave a parental advisory in advance because we we're gonna be talking about real stuff, right? Sexual brokenness and, and all kinds of things. So we gave a parental advisory and there was a man on the other side of the world. I don't know how he got onto our website but he listened to the message in Portugal and he sent an email and he said, that message had my number. I've been living in shame since I was 15 years old. And he told me about the trauma he experienced as a child survivor of abuse. And he said, I've been canning it and putting it in and burying it. He said, I grew up in a very legalistic environment, a very strict household, a very strict church. And he said, I had no resources to bring the gospel to bear on my shame. So all I've done is just live in shame since I was 15 years old. If you're wondering how old he is, he said in the email, I'm 76. Year after year. Don't tell me the gospel doesn't address real problems, real shame and guilt. That's where the story is. That's where our pain is. This man conveyed the idea that shame was used as a tool for sanctification. This is going to help you to do the right thing next time. Friend, hear me. Only in Christ can ultimate hope come to people locked in guilt and shame. Only the resources of the gospel. What is the arrival of Jesus Christ on earth? What does it announce? The first Christmas, what does it announce? Well, centuries before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah, under divine inspiration, said, this is what it's gonna feel like when Messiah comes. And here's what Isaiah said. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The shadow of guilt and shame 
and into it, Jesus comes with light. I love Eugene Peterson. He words it this way. He paraphrases it this way. Sitting in that dark, dark country of death, they watched the sun come up. There are some people in this room who are painfully familiar with the dark, dark country of death. There are some people probably in this room here this morning who would, who would say, if, if there's a prospect, if, if there's a chance that I could see the sun come up in the form of hope in the midst of my shame and my guilt, I'd be all over it. Listen, in the church, shame isn't a tool in the toolbox for sanctification. Shame doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. It doesn't take us anywhere good. It leaves us cowering and trembling away from the presence of the only one who can heal us. That's the reality, right? In in Hebrews 10, I love Hebrews 10, I quote it all the time, and I quote it because Hebrews 10 basically frames the gathering of the local church, and it says, when the church gathers, here's what it should sound like and feel like. Here's what Hebrews 10 says. You're coming in to work, worship in the church, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness, come on in to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, I love these words, with our hearts sprinkled, what's that word? Clean. (laughs) What's the shame person want to hear more than anything else? God saying, clean, come on, you're clean. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's a church I want to go to. That's a church that will arrest the attention of a world that is draped in guilt and shame, drenched in guilt and shame. You ever stop to think about what statement the gospel makes about you if you've trusted in Jesus Christ? The gospel makes this statement. God calls us what Jesus was. It calls us what Jesus was. It identifies us. The gospel calls you names, You ever think about it that way? The gospel, if you're a believer in Christ, the gospel calls you names. What names does it call you? Son. What name does it call you? Clean. What name does it call you? Mine. What name does it call you? Holy. Not by our own works or our own merit. It's a new identity. We're no longer in Adam. Now we're in Christ. Why do we rehearse this good news every single Sunday? Because every Sunday there are people in this room battling, struggling against guilt and shame. I I read a book last year called Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. I read it to help, you know, people who struggle with that sort of thing. I I, I read it for you, right? And then I wasn't a chapter into the book, and I'm like, actually, I'm reading this for me. I'm in this. I am in this book. Like, this book is all over me. What do we want? We want those who are sitting in that dark, dark country of death to watch the sun come up. Every Sunday, the sun comes up, the Church of Brook Hills. The, the hymn, Come Ye Sinners. You thought I was going to take one week to not quote a hymn. I just can't. I'm, it's, I'm incurable. Um, come Ye Sinners. 
And the fourth stanza of that great hymn, I think it was inspired by Hebrews 10. I think the author was reading Hebrews 10 that morning because here's what the hymn says. It's exhorting you, believer in Christ. It says this, let not conscience make you linger. What's that, what's that mean? It means don't hang out outside the door because of your prohibitive conscience thinking you can't come in till you clean yourself up. It says, let not conscience make you linger outside, nor of fitness fondly dream. Imagining yourself that you could get to this point where you you deserve to walk in boldly into the presence of God because of your own works. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness, fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Some of you, that might have not clicked until now. Maybe right now you just thought, wait, I don't have to make myself fit for the presence of a holy God. No, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. In other words, do you feel your need? Yes, then come in. Come in. The resources of grace are fully available to all who come in. Don't linger outside in Adam when Christ is offered. Don't linger outside in shame, in death and condemnation when life and righteousness are freely given in Jesus. Two truths, the story of the world. Tragically, it began this way. One act ruined all that was good, but praise be to God. One act redeems all that was ruined. One act ruined all that was good, and one act redeems all that was ruined. You see that next point in your notes. Into the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden and another representative. Into the Garden of Gethsemane came another human representative, Jesus, and our fate was tied to his. Jesus came to undo all that was broken by our first representative. You know, our text, again, is immersed in total contrast. You have two representatives Each of them does one act that changes the world. One act in Adam, one act in Christ. One act on the part of Adam who brought condemnation and judgments to language. One act on the part of the second Adam, indeed the last Adam, and what does he bring? The language in verse 15, he brings overflowing grace. He brings, verse 16, full acceptance or justification. Verse 17, a gift of righteousness. Verse 18, life replacing death. Verse 20, oversized grace, superabundant grace and eternal life. He more than compensates for all that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. It is total triumph of Jesus over guilt and shame that came pouring into the world in the first Adam. The first Adam brought darkness into a world that was bathed in light. The last Adam brought light into a world that was bathed in darkness. The first Adam was naked, and then he sinned and he had to be clothed. The last Adam was clothed, but to redeem us, he was stripped naked. That, by the way, was the practice of execution at that time, Roman execution, even Jewish execution when the people would be stoned. At the site of execution, they would strip all of their clothes off of them and they would be standing there in their abject shame. And what do you find out happens to Jesus Christ, the one innocent one, the sinless one, and he carries his cross and Mark's gospel lets you see him carry his cross to the designated place of execution and what happens there? They divided his garments and for his clothes they cast lots. It was the darkest auction in the history 
of the world. The tunic of the king of Israel. Where does bidding start? The underwear of God. You can imagine the mockery, the laughter. Who wants to start bidding for God's undergarments? And Jesus stands there at the foot of the cross, naked. The artists give him modesty, but that's, that's taking a liberty that wasn't really a reality. The first Adam ruined the world at a tree. The last Adam saved the world on a tree. Apostle Paul tells us why Advent took place, why Christ came into the world, that he came to undo all that was broken by the first Adam. Christianity, friends, don't miss it. It is a story of an all-out confrontation between God and guilt and shame. The triumph of God over guilt and shame, and Jesus didn't barely triumph. He didn't win by a fraction, by degrees. He totally, cosmically triumphed over darkness. The early patristics, the early church fathers who advanced one of their theories of the atonement which was named Christus Victor, Christ who triumphs from the cross. You know, in that movie, Remember the Titans, uh, the Titans win, if you've seen it, on a, you've had plenty of time, so this is a spoiler, but I'm going to tell you. So they went on a fourth down, come from behind, play at the very end of the game. That, that's Hollywood. The actual state championship that took place at Victory Stadium, Stadium in Roanoke, Virginia, was 27 to zero blowout. It wasn't a game. The same thing is true when Christ conquered at the cross. Colossians 2 is a kind of divinely inspired play-by-play commentary on what happened on the field. Here's what happened when Jesus was on the cross. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us. So he put on the jersey, played against the ones that were opposed to us, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the ruler. So looking from the outside, it looks like Jesus is the one who's disarmed. But he's disarming. He's doing the disarming on the cross and disgraced them publicly. It looks like Jesus is the one who's disgraced and naked, hanging in open shame. But he was exposing powers and principalities, putting them to flight. The next phrase is, he triumphed over them in him. That's the glory of Jesus coming and his atoning work on the cross. The first Adam introduced sin, death, guilt, and shame to the whole world. And the last Adam in the darkness outside Jerusalem, if you will, sang from the cross, goodbye, guilt, and shame. Not his own, for he was bearing it in that moment. He was saying goodbye to your guilt and your shame, to to the guilt and shame of all who would trust in him. It says he went to the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He won while he was wearing our jersey. A new human representative. There, there was a boy uh, on our son Will's basketball team. They both graduated together last year. In, um, when they were in high school, they played basketball together for several years. Uh, I'll call him John. Um, John had some special needs. 
he had some physical challenges. He had some mental challenges. Uh, when, matter of fact, when he talked about that at his senior sports banquet, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. It was awesome. Um, but he didn't get a whole lot of play time. In competitive sports, when he was out there, they could see. And if he got the ball, he, he wasn't good at protecting the ball. And so people would just come and take it from him. Uh, so he didn't get a lot of play time. He was always encouraging the other guys from the bench. He was always encouraging the other players. But if the game was already decided, if it was well in hand, or if we were down by 20, we'll never get it back, out to the court, he would go along with some others. And um, a few years before he graduated with our son, Will, from high school, there was a legendary night for John. And uh, the game had already been decided, so there was no way of, of changing that. And uh, so the coach pulled the starting five and and out goes John and four others. And literally, he's skipping onto the court. He is just blissful. Skipping onto the court. And uh, the clock is going down. It's probably a minute left on the clock. And uh, in a twist of faith that nobody necessarily saw coming or, or expected, the other team had the ball and they were coming down the court. And, and John reached in and actually got a steal. And he got his hands on the ball, and then he didn't know what to do with himself, so he's just violently pivoting, just pivoting and looking, pivoting and looking. And now the clock is down 10, 9, 8, and we're all screaming, shoot it! All of us are just screaming. And then we start counting down so he knows, man, there's not much time left, let's do this, right? And so it's three, two, and he hoists it from half court, one hand from half court, and immediately the trajectory looked right. And his dad stands up next to me, and I stand up, and I'm leaning back like this, and we're watching it, and it's like time slowed down, and there's a surge of volume from everybody on the bleachers. Everybody's watching this thing sail, and it goes in. And the whole place exploded. I mean, there was just cheer. Both sides of the court, Parents on all the bleachers, everybody. John's out there dancing. He's pumping his fist. He's, he's going absolutely berserk out there on the court. If you had walked in in that moment with no context, you would have thought, that was a game-winning shot. Like, I just walked in. It was a game-winning shot. One thing, game-winning shot. We were up by 20. Like if, and, then, and then if you walked in and you had no context and you found out it's not the game-winning shot, it was they were up by 20, they had already won the game, then you're wondering, well, why are both sides cheering? And both sides were cheering because at that moment in the game, we weren't pulling for our own teams. We, we were on Team John. That ball started to be hoisted from half court. Everybody in the room was on Team John, and his victory was our victory. If he won, we won. Everything was on the line in that moment. Our fate was tied to his. It was legendary. In the annals of evangel basketball, that story will be told to children and their children and their children. Matter of fact, John's seeing to it. He, he'll still bump into Will, our son, and other teammates. This is like years later now, like three years later. He'll still bump into them and he'll say, you remember that night? LAUGHTER when I launched it from half court and it went in and everybody went nuts, right? And all the teammates are like, yeah, man, that was awesome. It was legendary. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes solidarity really stinks. 
One man, Adam, failed. And he was wearing our jersey when he did. And his failure was our failure. But then woven into the world are a thousand little glimpses of the gospel that point to this day when the right man wore our jersey and heaved it from deep and his victory was our victory. When he won, we won. If we've trusted in him, his victory was our victory. And there in the darkness at Gethsemane, he sang goodbye. In that haunting minor key, he sang goodbye to your guilt and your shame. One mediator, one mission. What's the one mission? The one mission is to spread the good news that guilt and shame and death and condemnation will not have the last word for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Why do we give to the global offering? So let's just explain our tradition. Why do we do this year after year? We give to the global offering because how, how could we possibly keep a message like that to ourselves. Deepest problem in the world has an answer. Guilt and shame has an answer. You can be clean. You can be holy. You can be His forever, fully accepted by Him. And it's all right, and it's right because Jesus came and He took our place, and His victory is the promise that ours is coming. 